Hello, this is Brad Schwartz, professor and chairman of Southern Illinois University School of Medicine. On behalf of Richard Wolf Medical, the Endourological Society, and the Journal of Endourology, I would like to welcome you to the latest release in our podcast series. Each month, we will be presenting a current events topic of interest to our listeners. Thank you for listening today. Um, we have Rob Sweet, who is the professor of urology at University of Washington, and he's also the chairman of the Division of Healthcare Simulation Science. In addition to being the executive director of WISH and CREST in Seattle, Washington, these are both entities that deal with simulation and educational developments for teaching surgeons. Today, we're going to talk about developing and sustaining a simulation program at your center. Uh, Rob, thank you very much. Uh, we know that our listeners will benefit greatly from your expertise, and uh, we appreciate your time. Oh, it's great speaking to you this morning, Brad. Look forward to it. So, Rob, you have your history and your roots in endourology. You're a fellowship-trained stone guy, and uh, you're an extremely skilled surgeon. How did you go about thinking about or developing your love for simulation, and, and how did it start way back when to into what it's developed into now? Um, yeah, thanks, Brad. I mean, technically, I didn't do an endo fellowship. I did do two years of an, uh, what was called AFUD back in the day, a scholar, and then focused on endourology during those two years. But those two years were so key for me in, in helping develop an academic career. It really started, though, when I was a 30 resident and going through training myself at the University of Washington at the time. And it was really during a TERP. Uh, and I was watching an attending do a, a TURP. And I sat down, took about two swipes, and he took it away and kept going. And sometimes I had attendings who take the camera off and just look in the eyepiece and you're staring at the back of their head. And, and you're thinking to yourself, how, how am I going to do this? You know, how am I going to figure this out? And you know, back in those times, as you know, you kind of figured a lot of this stuff out during your practice, which is a scary concept. But I was watching the attending do that and stared when he was using the camera, staring at the screen and moving his hands in space. And, you know, you and I grew up at the beginning of video games, the real old ones, and it just clicked. And I looked and I said that he's basically doing this could be trained like a video game. There's got to be a way to do this. And I asked him, I said, you know, is there a training system I can go and practice? So next time I can take more than two swipes. I didn't say that, of course, but, <laughs> and he said, no, but you know, there are these models and Dr. Pellegrini, who was, uh, has been really a, a pioneer in simulation and general surgery and simulation in general was at the University of Washington. And there was a small company that had started called Simulab right in, in Seattle. And I went and talked to them and said, hey, could you make me a model for prostate? And he said, no, you know, bleeding is too important. We, we don't know how to simulate bleeding. He said, but there's this lab right down the street from you called the Human Interface Technology Lab, the HIT lab. And this place was, I didn't know, I just walked across campus and went there. This place was famous. And Brad, I felt like a kid in a candy store. I mean, <laughs> it, I mean, all of these people doing virtual reality. Okay, this is like 1999. Okay, and I'm and I'm like, what the heck is this? And 
I saw this thing that Lockheed Martin had done with this lab where they built this endoscopic sinus simulators using virtual models. And I'm like, what? This is so cool. I'm like, you know, we can do this for TERP. And to make the longer story short at this point, you know, I was able to, to get some funding and, and build a TERP simulator uh, as a resident with this group. And it actually did wind up going commercial briefly. Uh, we licensed it out to a company. And at the time, unfortunately, they didn't understand that you can't put things of that complexity on laptops because laptops couldn't handle them. Now, of course they can, but at the time they couldn't. And it really degraded the quality of the frame rate that you're seeing. And I think, you know, they had trouble, trouble selling them. Ultimately, it looked nothing like what we had built when they were done with it, which is unfortunate. But I learned a ton about it and I got so excited and I met a man named Richard Satava. And Richard Satava is really the person who inspired so many people, but certainly me and, and remains my friend and colleague and mentor to this day. I saw him speak at a uh, Medicine Meets Virtual Reality conference. And I just knew, I said, this is my my destiny. Like I, I want to go in this lane um, and, and keep developing this. And he took some interest because of the TERP simulator that I presented at the meeting and, you know, introduced me to people and and uh, ultimately, I wound up doing the AFUD fellowship under him because he came to the University of Washington from Yale. It just happened that way. So there's something you had an idea, you went with it, and then you had some mentors uh, to really help guide the way and the good old story, right? I mean, it, it's uh, we don't hear those those stories a lot only because this was so successful. So if I'm listening to this and in my mind, I'm just trying to say, okay, well, you know, that's all great. I, I don't have a hit across my campus. I don't have a Dr. Satava on my faculty. What do you think are some just bare essentials? I mean, how how does a, a program director, how does a program coordinator, how do young faculty at, a, at an academic center might say, you know, what are the bare essentials? What do I absolutely need to start some kind of SIM center or some kind of SIM program where my residents and fellows can truly benefit from off the ice education and training? That's a great question. And I would always start with looking at what resources exist. It's very tempting to start from scratch and build something organically. And I think that's important to, to, to create a straw man uh, of your own ideas and put that aside. But then before you start cranking it away and getting that thing going and, and, and nurturing that, that concept is going out to your own institution first and finding out what resources exist because you don't want to duplicate those. That's the biggest pitfall we saw and, and you wind up wasting a lot of time and money in areas you don't need to waste time or money. Find out what resources exist. You may have simulation resources, centers, expertise at your own institution, first of all. Second of all, Go to other institutions and, and and talk to your colleagues and find. I'm always happy to talk to people, and I think I visited your center. That's when you and I first met a long, yes, long time ago. Yep, you guys were very mature. I I don't think that was the reason I was there in your particular case, but certainly other places where people that have done this already can provide uh, guidance. Um, uh, can provide some momentum. You know, we can talk to. And, and help with uh, the leadership at, at institutions and kind of force the vision that the individual might have for that institution, the benefits 
that, that it's had for our institutions and then borrow curriculum. You don't need to build your own curriculum every place. I mean, there, there are some tiny unique things about every place, you know, like a VA system, let's say, versus a, uh, a county hospital versus some, but those nuances can be still tweaked from curricula that exist. You don't need to reinvent the wheel necessarily. So a great place to look is MedEd Portal, for example. There are a lot of curricula there that, that have uh, validation evidence behind them. So these are the things you start with uh, in building building what you want to do. The next thing is getting buy-in. So in your division or your department or whatever scale you're going to do this, you can't do this alone. And if the department chair, Brad, pats you on the back and says, oh, yeah, I'm totally supportive of, of you doing this. I'm going to give you 0.1 FTE. Go at it. You know, you're not going to be successful. I'm sorry. One person cannot do this. This has to be something that the department shares some responsibility for as a department. And I would argue that, yeah, this 1.1 person needs to lead it, organize it, nurture it. But the members need to be engaged, just like a journal club. It's no different. I believe if you want to make this, you need to have carrots and sticks as a leader. And I, you know, I know you guys have done this for years and you know this, but you have to provide incentives for the faculty to participate. But that means protected time to teach and then also protected time for the residents to learn. Their pages are going off and they're expected to be in the OR at the same time. It's not going to work. So you got to have protected time uh, for people and have an expectation. Say, you know what, we want you to teach one or two uh, training modules uh, every year. Okay, this is what this is your baby, just like this chapter in Campbell's is your baby for teaching the residents. On the skills side, you're going to do this every year and you share that burden in the department. That way, if you lose that one person, you're not, your whole program doesn't fall apart. You've got a foundation there. Back in the day, Rob, I think, I think a lot of those were real challenges, right? I mean, the buy-in, the, the acceptance of everybody, the time. Now, you know, at least in the, even the ACGME requirements were required to have some kind of simulation set up or some access to simulation and, and skills labs. Um, I think most residents are expecting some type of skills lab training, et cetera. You know, when you look around the country and you look at your center, you look at Rochester with uh, Dr. Ghazi, you look at, um, you know, uh, Phoenix with uh, the Mayo Clinic and what they've accomplished, and you look at San Diego and their center, and Florida has an incredible training center. H how do you break away from kind of this skills lab envy where I want to jump in and I want a multi-million dollar building and I want all of the bells and whistles right away as opposed to building it slowly and getting it up and running? I mean, there is this kind of envious, like, oh my gosh, I mean, those guys are are so far ahead of us and they are so advanced. How do I set something up that's even going to approach viability and, and acceptability from those who teach in it and those who learn in it? Let me use an example. <clears throat> I know this guy at SIU named Dr. Bradley Schwartz, <laughs> and he goes to the local market in the morning and buys peppers and tomatoes, bananas, and all kinds of things. And he brings it to his lab. And I would argue that Dr. Schwartz's program is probably one of the, the envy and should be the envy of, of most of these, the programs that are out there. The fidelity of the models, 
it matters for certain things, especially if you're going to get to fellows, okay, or you're going to get to practicing surgeons and trying to work with them on on advanced skills. It matters there. But for fundamental skills, it doesn't. And I would argue that it isn't about the beautiful, you know, shiny spaces and square footage and uh, programs. It's it's about the curriculum. Curriculum matters so much more in the protected time, like we mentioned, matters way more than the facilities. Um, you have to start with a program first uh, and then, you know, start showing that the return on investment, which is important to think about if you have a program, is start with that and show the administrators that your return on investment is good. And that's tricky. Okay, that's not that's a discussion all in and of itself. But I would re recommend you do is uh, at your institution, engage a couple people, one, your patient safety officer early on, put them on your advisory board um, and engage with them. And number two, your risk management department. You prevent one lawsuit, you've paid for your program for like three years, okay? So uh, one lawsuit. So I think that you can start making the argument from a financial standpoint to get some support for these programs as well. But it isn't about the space. It isn't about the, I mean, there are research, uh, you mentioned some programs that have robust research programs, and that's different than a, a training program. I think the two go hand in hand. And certainly, you know, we've done that at our institution, as well as institutions I've been involved with, but you don't have to have a research program. The training program can be unbelievably successful with very little resources. Okay. Well, I, I appreciate the shout out. That's very kind. But uh, I, again, I've been to your, I've been to your program and it really is uh, incredibly uh, successful. Just on the coattails of, of what you were leading up to a little bit there, you know, in urology, we rely on industry partnerships and, and things a lot just for a lot of support. How, what is your experience with industry going through what you've already gone through over the last, you know, 15 or 20 years is, are they interested? Are they true partners? Or do they want to steal the, the information and the, they want to kind of keep it on their own? I know a lot of the companies are developing their own models and their own kind of keeping it in-house. Is industry a partner in all of this or are they more kind of, you know, uh, let's see what happens and they might be competitors to some degree? I've seen everything in the spectrum here with working with industry. I mean, that TURP project I mentioned to you, that was funded by industry. I mean, they had their ulterior motives. They always do, right? I mean, they do. But in the end, I don't care so much about as much as much about IP and that thing as I used to. I think when, when I was a more junior person, I've realized that it's really important to get what we do out there. That's probably way more important. I believe more in impact. I care more about impact than I care about IP and money necessarily. I need, I mean, we want to find the best pathway to get these training tools out in the hands of people so that they can improve their skills and take care of people. Basically, that's the, the mission. It's to improve the health of the public with simulation. Sure. So it just if it meets that mission, then it makes sense. We've had a couple of good stories with industry. I think one I'd like to share is. I'm very proud of it was, again, is a good example of what I just described, where we were funded by, at the time, American Medical Systems, you know, now that's under Boston Scientific, 
But remember when the green light, light laser came out. So yep. we had the experience with the TERP, and then we got the opportunity to partner with American <clears throat> Medical Systems to build the green light laser simulator. We did all the software. We did all the hardware. We did that. And University of Minnesota, on our grant, we didn't get much credit for it at all. Uh, and it drove me crazy at the time. But, you know, now I don't, I don't really care. It was a great partnership. And it's trained probably over a thousand surgeons. And what was cool about it, it was a VR system and it trained practicing surgeons, not residents, practicing surgeons. Right. And what the company did, which was brilliant, is they made it a requirement to practice on it before they did their first cases. Then those first cases with this new technology were successful. Then they were comfortable transitioning away from whatever other modalities they were doing at the time, which was primarily was TURP. So it was smart uh, and they used it in the right place. The company had a curriculum. I helped them build that curriculum and, and, the, and the simulator was built on, it was a curriculum in and of itself with modules that you followed through. They went through that uh, as part of a curriculum before they did their first cases. Then they came back and did more complex cases on the simulator and then went back. The company did this. I say, I mean, I was very proud of that. Financially, it was horrible. We got nothing from it, nothing, you know, other than making it um, Did I personally or my lab that did all the work on this make any money on it. No, it's okay. I'm very proud of it. And I think that it, it was arguably the first simulator in VR that went out that actually trained practicing surgeons before sure. doing their first cases. And I feel <clears> good about that. A successful carbon footprint doesn't always lead to the bank, right? It's, uh, That's right. <laughs> it has a huge impact, but it's... Uh... <laughs> so uh, before before I get on to my last question for you, I, I'd like you to really tell the audience um, something that I think is amazing. And I know you're you're really kind of proud of it is your new program that you have with the uh, Division Healthcare Simulation Science. I, I, I think the viewers should understand what you've developed and what you've created, because I think it really is a model of how we're going to disseminate teachers, trainers, simulation and medicine and so on. Just tell them what it is uh, and what it means and, and kind of what it encompasses. And then I have one final question for you. You know, uh, as, as my journey through this career in this area has made me, it's hum very humbling. Uh, and the number of Individuals and the talents uh, and their specific areas of expertise are very diverse. Uh, healthcare simulation as a science, and that's how we saw it, involves art, it involves engineering, it involves education, and it involves, in our case, urology and surgery. And it goes beyond that into nursing and other healthcare areas too, because that's we use simulation for that as well, as you know. So how do we train people? with a little bit of all those areas and fields to develop the field of healthcare simulation science. It's this Venn, complex Venn diagram. And I realized there really isn't a curriculum out there to do this. How do we train the next generation? And we've done it through our fellowship program. We have an American College of Surgeons accredited fellowship program. I really love uh, training people, especially from outside the U.S., uh, to go back and start their own programs. And we've had many fellows now. It's an endowed program. We have one every year. And they've gone and done amazing things all around the world. And that fellowship continues. 
But then I realized we also need to help on the engineering side and, and, and some of the research and development side. And I wanted to create a master's program. And so in order to do that, we had to create our own academic unit. So we created a division of healthcare simulation science. Um, and that is the entity you're referring to. And that allows us to hire faculty, which we've done now. We have three full-time faculty and uh, 24 adjunct faculty. We have affiliate faculty that help. We're putting our master's program together that can deliver lectures, et cetera, uh, for our students. And these master's students can come from arts, engineering, education, or clinical medicine and get a robust, multi-diverse, multidisciplinary training in healthcare simulation science so they can go out and really take this field to the next level, which, as you know, I mean, I don't need to say it, with being able to take off right now with the artificial intelligence and machine learning. And it's these individuals, I believe, that are going to drive the future of, of healthcare. And what that is at its heart is a simulation engine. What trains the machine learning, you can do it through with simulation. And in the end, you, you know, you can either be, it can either be a feedback loop to train these machine learnings with simulation or create simulation from these machine learning uh, algorithms. So it's an integral part. We're going to start seeing simulation transition from just being used as an education tool to being part of our tools that we use in surgery today. I mean, that's going to happen. Um, so there'll be a simulation engine uh, behind as we're actually operating and, and helping us, uh, you know, get information and, and interact with the tissue and, and the physiology in real time. And, and the only way to do that is to have and to be able to simulate it and fine tune and create guardrails, right? And that'll be based on clinical data as well as simulation data. That's so remarkable. I, I just, it just blows my mind of what, you know, what you've been able to accomplish as far as moving this whole field forward. You definitely kind of answered my last question, to, you know, what is the future of simulation? The one thing you didn't mention, the, the one word I heard you did not say was metaverse. I was wondering if you could maybe tell some old decrepit guy what a metaverse is and will it have any effect on simulation in medicine or any kind of use in how we teach and train people? <laughs> Good question. I haven't really thought about the metaverse very much, Brad, to be honest with you, but it sounds uh, sounds like you have. Uh, so. <laughs> I think I experience the metaverse every day of my life, but I'm not sure because I don't know what it is. <laughs> Frankly, I like reality too much, uh, but the metaverse is basically this alternate reality that we sort of could live in, in a way. You know, that's a scary thought to me, to be honest. I think it, it'd be nice to go there every once in a while, but to, to kind of spend but most we, of my time but, there but can would we, be... Can we perform a surgery in the metaverse before we do it in the real universe without harm to the patient? I, I see a time where we we just, we actually... We'll be able to, if we, as we develop and collect clinical data, and then runs, and we have the right tissue data, and we have the right physiologic data, and all those models have been validated, where we don't even need to do that, we don't have to do it, it'll become automated. I mean, yeah. you take that data and you run it a thousand times without just in the background with a supercomputer. And now you could, you know, with a supercomputer, you can do that now, but, you know, later, later on, we won't be able, we won't need a supercomputer. Sure. But. And then, you know, you keep doing it until you get it right. And then you just hit a button basically and, and the robot will just do it. 
because the guardrails will be established, right? This yeah. is a no-fly zone. This is, uh, you know, okay, like the, there's a nerve here. There's a vessel here. Mm -hmm. This is bleeding now. And, of course, there'll be override, just like driving cars. There'll be – We have self-driving cars. So. Yeah. yeah, it's, it's you know, Same that's thing. probably where we're going to wind up going. Uh, we won't need to practice it, I don't think, in the metaverse. But <laughs> it sounds kind of fun. But <laughs> Well, Rob, uh, I, truly, uh, I, I think anybody who has an interest in developing, sustaining, or or, or uh, having simulation in their uh, in their program, I think they really need to contact you and, and just kind of see what um, what you've done. Uh, I want I want to thank you for your time and your expertise. Um, it's been uh, great talking with you, and uh, I, I look forward to what you and your group are going to do next because it's always mind-boggling what you're able to accomplish. So. Thank you very much for your time and expertise. We look forward to seeing you again. Thank you, Brad, for the opportunity. It's always great talking to you. On behalf of uh, Richard Wolf Medical, the Journal of Endourology and the Endourological Society, I thank you for listening today and hope you can tune into the next podcast. <laughs>